0: You're listening to Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness, the fastest growing natural health, nutrition, and inspiration podcast in the nation. Uplifting stories, powerful messages, and triumph over adversity, the experience of entertainment and encouragement is about to begin. And now your host, Dr. Ward Bond.
1: I'm Dr. Ward Bond, and I welcome you to another edition of Life-Changing Wellness. Today's episode is brought to you by primroseleaf.com, multi-use nutritional supplements for your immune system and overall good health. Youth, beauty, longevity, primroseleaf.com. Now, before we begin, please head over to iTunes after the interview with my guest today. Rate and review the show for me, and I want to thank you ahead of time for making our show great. Well, our guest today is Dr. Robert Lustig, a pediatric neuroendocrinologist, and he has long been on the cutting edge of medicine and science. Throughout his 40-plus year career, the New York Times bestselling author of Fat Chance has been dedicated to treating and preventing childhood obesity and diabetes with his brand new book, Metabolical, The Lure and the lies of processed food, nutrition, and modern medicine, he exposes the truth both scientifically and politically underlying the current global pandemic of diet-related diseases. In his previous work, The Hacking of the American Mind, Dr. Lustig makes very clear how the processed food industry has hacked our bodies and minds to pursue pleasure over happiness, Fueling widespread addiction and depression. And in Metabolical, he addresses nutrition, food science, and global health and explains how by focusing on real food, we can reverse chronic disease and promote longevity. For the first time, all strands of this pandemic the medical, the economic, and the environmental are pulled together into one clear narrative. So ladies and gentlemen, the truth will be clearer as we welcome our very esteemed guest today, Dr. Robert Lustig. Welcome to the show, Doctor.
0: Well thank you so much, Dr. Bond. I have to say that was about the kindest introduction and made, you know, the most sense in terms of, you know, putting my forty years of work together. Thank you.
1: Well, I well, you're very, very welcome, and I am, I, I mean, I'll tell you one thing, doctor, I am so honored to have you here because I cannot wait for you to expel and just bring forth the truth that people literally need to know and to realize that, uh, you know, we live in a world now that's almost like a world of make-believe until the truth comes out. So my first question to you is, what is underlying the current global pandemic of diet-related diseases?
0: Well, that's a very good question. And in the book, I basically try to tie it all up into a, you know, very nice uh, package with a bow. Um, Once upon a time, food uh, caused health. Now food causes illness. But in fact, It's because it's not food. Processed food is not food. And that's what we've learned. Processed food is the opposite of food. So food promotes health. The food industry promotes disease. And it's because processed food is not food. It is calories. It may even have some macro and micronutrients we need, but ultimately it is not health because it is not food. So let me explain to you what healthy means. The uh, FDA, the USDA, the National Academy of Medicine, the uh, uh, Surgeon General, the White House, Congress, all have different definitions of what constitutes healthy. None of them are consistent with each other. And for that reason, the food industry gets away with pretty much calling anything healthy. They're actually being called on it now in various lawsuits that challenge the word "healthy." What I state in the book is that "healthy" constitutes two two things, two clauses, six words, and you can remember these six. These are easy: protect the liver, feed the gut. Wow. Any food, any food that does both of those is healthy. Any food that does neither of those is poison, very specifically poison. And any food that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. And the empiric data in terms of not just epidemiology but randomized control trials and econometric analyses, things that actually you know lead to proof, you know, basically bear this out. So I propose that we use this definition, protect the liver, feed the gut, as our definition of what constitutes health, what constitutes healthy. And the problem is that ultra-processed food fails on both counts.
1: You know, it's amazing that you bring up the liver, which a lot of people seem to forget about most of the time. And you bring up the gut, which, you know, we both know that the gut has really made its name for itself in the news in the last couple of years. And even when I did the introduction for you at the beginning of the show, you know, two words jumped out addiction and depression. And if you have poor gut health and because of the nutrients and the neurotransmitters must uh, travel up the vagus nerve back to the brain. Then addiction and depression, I mean, they're they're wreaking havoc in our system because of poor gut health.
0: Indeed, so poor gut health is a lot of things all at once. the The, the gut is, you know, some, some people call it the mini brain or the second brain. Right. Uh, you know, it's got its own enteric nervous system. It also, importantly, the same protein. That forms the barrier in the brain called the blood-brain barrier that keeps stuff in the blood from getting into the brain, unless, of course, the brain needs it, is the exact same protein that uh, causes a barrier at the level of the uh, intestine. You know, keeps the stuff that's in the intestinal lumen, you know, all the bacteria and all the cytokines and all the lipopolysaccharides, and, uh, you know, from getting into your bloodstream. So these proteins are called zonulins, Z O N U L I N S. They are the protein that goes defective in celiac disease, but you don't have to have celiac disease to have them defective. So if you broach that gut barrier, You are letting things that cause inflammation into your portal vein, into your systemic circulation, ultimately causing liver dysfunction. And ultimately, if they reach the brain, they can cause brain dysfunction. And so you can have behavioral health disorders such as addiction and depression, or you can even have psychiatric disorders. So, you know, keeping your gut functional and healthy and uh, maintaining that gut barrier is absolutely essential to metabolic health and to whether or not any given food is healthy so how do you basically take advantage of your intestinal barrier so that you can do right well you have to feed the gut that's you know precept number 2 so the question is what does the gut eat well it eats what you eat the question is how much did you get versus how much did those bacteria get fiber wow. Fiber is the single best nutrient that you can consume. And the problem is that the fiber isn't for you. It's for your bacteria. So people issue fiber and think it's not important. Oh, it's something that makes you go poop.
1: Not (laughs) at all. I
0: mean, it does, but that's not all it does. Um, Fiber actually has six separate functions in the intestine, all of which are important in terms of uh, uh, total health. Uh, the first thing it does. Uh, think of it this way. Um, uh, look, think of a spaghetti colander. Okay, metal mm-hmm. bowl with holes, right? All Let right. the water drain through. All right. So you run the water. Water goes right through. Now take a blob of petroleum jelly. Throw it into the center of the colander. Run the water. Still runs through. it Bounces off the jelly, but basically still runs through. Now take your finger and rub that petroleum jelly all the way around the colander. Now run the water. Now you got a barrier. Now the water doesn't go through. So, the soluble fiber, the pectins, the inulin, the th- stuff that holds jelly together, stuff that's found in real food, acts to plug the holes in the colander. The cellulose or the the insoluble fiber is the lattice work That basically acts like the colander itself to have the holes plugged together. When you consume food that has both soluble and insoluble fiber, you form a barrier, a secondary barrier on the inside of your intestine that prevents the early absorption of sugars, simple carbohydrates, various foodstuffs that would otherwise get across early and flood your liver. Thus, you are protecting your liver. And so you're keeping your liver insulin sensitive by not subjecting it to the tsunami of all that early uh, broken down food absorption. So that's the first thing that the fiber does. Second thing, well, if you're not absorbing it early, that means that you're not generating much of a glucose response. So you're keeping your glycemic excursion low. So your blood glucose doesn't rise as high, which means your insulin in your blood doesn't rise as high. And insulin is the hormone that shunts everything that you eat into fat. So you're actually maintaining weight and also preventing chronic metabolic disease because the higher the insulin, the more your cells drive that chronic metabolic disease, cell growth. in the coronaries, it becomes vascular smooth muscle endothelial growth. In the uh, uh, in uh, in the intestine, it causes uh, tumors, etc. The third thing is, if you're not absorbing it early, it goes further down the intestine, and that's where the bacteria are. So you're basically feeding those bacteria, so that those bacteria have food so they don't feed on you, because if you don't feed those bacteria, they will strip the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells, and that will expose your gut to all of those um, toxins, the lipopolysaccharides, the cytokines, uh, uh, the exotoxins, the endotoxins, uh, that ultimately cause inflammation, cause disease.
1: So does that actually lead to things like irritable bowel syndrome and ulcerative colitis?
0: Exactly right.
1: So hey. IBS right. is
0: associated with, that, uh, with the uh, uh, removal of that mucin layer. And you can actually see on electromicroscopy that the bacteria are opposed, right? APP, uh, right onto the intestinal epithelial cell. And what that does is that causes those zinulins to become dysfunctional. And so you end up with a phenomenon called leaky gut. In addition, uh, that soluble fiber it, uh, ends up feeding the, uh, uh, the colonic bacteria. And the colonic bacteria love that soluble fiber. They turn the soluble fiber into short-chain fatty acids, butyrate and propionate. And those two uh, uh, chemicals reduce your immune response, like, for instance, during COVID-19, to try to reduce the cytokine response so you don't get super sick. And also it's anti-insulin. It keeps your insulin suppressed so you don't overdo it and drive all those chronic metabolic diseases. And finally, it acts like little scrubbies on the inside of your intestine in order to get rid of cancer cells. So pretty much feeding your gut, and feeding your gut means basically fiber, uh, is absolutely essential to general and metabolic health problem. You know, you, Ultra processed food is fiberless food.
1: Exactly. And you bring up a point that I want all of my listeners to understand in all of 2020 or, or I should say most of 2020, everybody was on some sort of lockdown and in the very beginning, and I took note of this and you're going to find this interesting and probably agree with me. Um, in the very beginning, when everybody rushed to the grocery store to so-called stock up on items because they were going to try to flatten the curve for only two weeks, not 10 months. Right. So for the first two weeks, everybody's grabbing food, or I should say what they think is food, because everything was running out, toilet paper and all sorts of processed types of foods. But when you walk through the produce department, everything was full. That's right. Nobody paid attention to the produce department. And in a way, with what you're saying... By loading up on all these processed foods, you're destroying your gut and your liver. You're lowering your immune response, and you basically increased your own risk for COVID-19. Am I correct?
0: That's exactly right. So my nonprofit called Eat Real, and you can find it online at eatreal.org, we published a medical alert which actually took the CDC and the NIH to task. We think they screwed up. And the reason we think they screwed up, you think? Uh, well, yeah. Well, well, they I know up, they screwed up in more ways than one. How's that? Yeah.
1: There we go. There we go. Keep talking, doctor.
0: Uh, they uh, entreated us to follow three separate uh, uh, modalities uh, to try to uh, limit uh, viral uh, uh, morbidity and mortality. Uh, they told us to mask, to hand wash, and to socially distance, all of which are true, and I'm completely supportive of all three of those. They left out the fourth, the food. They didn't mention the food. They never mentioned the food, and this is why we called them out. Turns out, COVID-19 causes its morbidity and mortality through what is known as the cytokine response, it's not the virus that kills you. It's your crappy immune response to the virus that kills you. That's why some people seem to sail through it and other people seem to be, you know, basically knocked on its, uh, on their keister and a lot of people end up in the ICU and dead. So let's look at who ends up in the ICU and dead. All right, the elderly, and they certainly have their own immune dysfunctions, you know, because aging basically wrecks the immune system. But let's look at the other three demographic groups. People of color, the obese, pre-existing conditions, which are all metabolic syndrome, such as, for instance, diabetes. So let's look at those. People of color, the obese, and metabolic syndrome. What do those three share in common? The consumption of ultra processed food
1: it's also economic isn't it
0: well of course it's socioeconomic absolutely you know, because
1: you bring up uh you know here, here you are bringing up people of color and for those of like you and me we both know that the biggest fast food companies like to settle in those neighborhoods
0: absolutely well, they do, and if you uh, go to uh, a lot of the, the very poor neighborhoods, they often don't even have a store that sells fresh produce or uh, you know uh, food, you know, real food. You know, it's pretty much all ultra processed food because then it sits on a shelf and therefore decreased depreciation, therefore increased profit, because you can't freeze fiber. So try it. I mean, take an orange, put it in your uh, freezer overnight take it out the next morning, leave it on the counter, let it thaw, try to eat it, see what you get. You get mush. Why do you get mush? Because the ice crystals that formed inside macerate the cell wall, let all the water rush in. Hey, food industry knows that. So what Mm. do they do? Squeeze it and freeze it. Now it lasts forever. Now it's frozen concentrated orange juice. You can sell it on the commodities market because it doesn't go bad. And that's the definition of commodities, storable food. Point is an orange is not a commodity, but orange juice is. Wow. It makes them money.
1: I'm blown away. (laughs) I've never put those two things together. Wow. I I am a student today, doctor. So I am listening. Continue.
0: (laughs) Well, the point is, that COVID caused everybody to run to the store and get all the stuff that they could put on their shelves because they only had so much room in their refrigerator. And so, you know, Kraft couldn't keep up with the macaroni and cheese. They actually ran out of macaroni and cheese six weeks into the pandemic. I mean, think about it. So the question is, what about processed food leads to such a disaster? Well, a few things. Number one, the lack of fiber. So the lack of short-chain fatty acids, therefore the aggravation of the immune response, the aggravation of that cytokine response. So if you get sick with COVID, you are much more likely to get super sick because of your inability to suppress your cytokine response. Number two, the COVID virus is very smart. It's way smarter than you. It has an injector point where it injects the RNA into your cell to take it over and, you know, to propagate and to, you know, ultimately cause your sickness. And it uses a specific molecule on each of your cells in your body. And that molecule is called ACE2, A-C-E-2, angiotensin converting enzyme 2. This is an endocrine receptor. It's involved in water transport and pretty much every cell has it because every cell has to mediate its water uh, content. So, the COVID virus is very smart. It uses this cell because it's virtually everywhere. It's especially, of course, in the lung, but it's everywhere. The point is that insulin resistance, which is metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, the high levels of insulin increase the number of ACE2 molecules on each cell, thereby giving the virus even more chance to be able to inject its RNA and you know, take over your cells and cause morbidity and mortality. And then finally, the third way has to do with high glucose levels. So diabetes, high glucose, turns out the glucose crystallizes around that ACE2 molecule and holds it open and allows the virus to be able to inject that, uh, its RNA even easier. So three separate ways that ultra-processed food Lead to increased COVID morbidity and mortality. We should have known that. We had the data, and the NIH and the CDC didn't even tell us.
1: A lot, <clears throat> that's that's malpractice.
0: Well, that's why we called it out.
1: And, and I'm glad you did because if you really think about it, and you were right, the the elderly population, as you said, you know, aging you know, destroys the immune system. Their thymus gland is almost not existent, if existent at all. They're in nursing homes, um, which is why the death rate was so high there. And then, you know, people of color, diabetics, people who are obese, every single one of those groups either ended up with COVID or ended up in the hospital, and many of them died. That's right and and you know and i and i'm kind of like you i was the thing that probably angered me the most was the confusion the inconsistency of the cdc the fda the united states government and the world health organization the list goes on nobody agreed on anything from the very beginning and the confusion still continues today And which is why, to me, it's kind of like you have maskers versus anti-maskers and the list goes on because there was never a foundation laid in which everybody agreed. Everybody kept making press statements and then contradicting one another while people were dying.
0: Well, let's be very honest about this. I mean, the Trump administration, you know, very specifically suppressed specific, uh, pieces of information. And also this was a new virus. We didn't know enough about it. You know, right. people probably, you know, I mean, in, in, order to try to attempt to control it, people started saying things early on in the course that ultimately they, you know, ended up tending to regret, you know, but that's not their fault because they were trying, you know, they were caught between a rock and a hard place. Right. They saw, well, yeah, you know, this it pandemic was. Yeah. Because,
1: and yeah, because one of the biggest things that I noticed, you know, in the very beginning was, you have an administration trying to protect, trying to protect the economic status of a nation, and not wanting to uh, destroy that. But then, like you said, people would come out during a press conference, say one line, and the press took it and went running with it, and it became a narrative. Well, and created a lot of havoc while people were not given the truth, like what you're giving us today.
0: Well the bottom line is that the, they knew about the food and they didn't say anything about it because obviously ultra processed food is a very big deal in this country in terms of its in terms of economics. So if you had told everybody, hey, look, all the ultra processed food in the store, that's the stuff, the stuff on the shelves, that's the stuff you need to basically leave there. You need to basically shop the edges of the supermarket. And, you know, since you're all eating at home, why don't you eat real food since you're at home anyway? That would have been the right uh, message. But, you know, that wasn't a, shall we say, an economically uh, uplifting one.
1: Well, you know, it's kind of funny, I heard some I, at the of very early on, um, probably about two, maybe three months in to the pandemic, you know, I would hear these uh, small news items that nobody would really pay attention to where farmers were complaining, like, where are we going to put all this food that we need to get to market? And I'm thinking, that's real food and nobody was buying it they were all stocking up like on Kraft macaroni and cheese like you said and then those people ran out and made a ton of money but the farmers were like we got to get this stuff to market but nobody's buying
0: well so so clearly we we have a problem because we have a disconnect between our food our health our economics and our environment and my book metabolical tries to deal with this disconnect and try to explain how all stakeholders can be uh, can, can come together around this notion of real food even the food industry even the food industry stands to make a profit if they did the right thing the problem is they can't do the right thing
1: explain that why why they can't because the title t- the, the title of your book which really, I mean, to me, it draw, it will draw a reader in very quickly. Metabolical. I mean, every time I see the word I'm thinking Mm. diabolical, and then you have the lure and the lies of processed food, nutrition, and modern medicine. What are the lures and the lies?
0: Well, so what, what I say in the book is that modern medicine went off the rails Okay, and I've been practicing forty years, and it is those forty years when modern medicine went off the rails. So I remember when modern medicine actually kind of did it right. And once you know, modern medicine knows how to take care of acute disease, but it does not know how to take care of chronic disease. And I can prove it. Mm -hmm. Right? You have to work upstream of a chronic disease to be able to solve it. In the book, I I liken it to the wasp in your attic. You go up into the attic, and there's a wasp. What are you going to do? Are you going to kill the wasp, or are you going to destroy the wasp's nest? Yeah. You have to work upstream of a problem to solve a problem. Working downstream of a problem only solves the results of the problem. It doesn't solve the cause. And if you don't solve the cause, you still have the problem.
1: Yeah, now, which like why it. medicine fails at prevention.
0: That's right. Medicine completely fails at prevention. You know, and has it has, you know, pretty much for its entire existence, but especially in the last 50 years, because everybody thinks there's a pill for that. Well, it turns out there is no pill for that. So, yes, we have pills for high LDL, you know, like statins. We have pills for high blood pressure, any hypertensives. We have pills for high blood glucose, you know, oral hypoglycemics or insulin. We have pills for, you know, all sorts of ailments except for one thing those pills are not treating the ailment. They are treating the symptoms of the ailment. The high high LDL is not the problem. It is the symptom of the problem. The high blood glucose is not the problem. It is the symptom of the problem. The high blood pressure is not the problem. It is the symptom of the problem. All those diseases, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, polycystic ovarian disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, all of these diseases have no cure. Have no cure. We have treatments for them, but they're only treating the symptoms. The disease is still there, which is why people still keep getting sick and why not only is lifespan going down, but health span is going down even faster. And that's why we have people who are 40 years old with legs amputated on, you know, on dialysis, waiting for their next stroke.
1: Well, then let me ask you this. Let me ask you a very important question here. And I'm afraid I know what the answer is, but I want to hear you say it. Is the processed food industry in bed with medical science?
0: So we don't know that. That's a really good question. We do not have documentation that says that this is a conspiracy. We do not know that. However, what we do know is that Nestle is selling both Butterfingers and diabetes pills now.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. Um, That we know. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we can figure this one out. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I I mean, I mean, you know, and I've heard, you know, I don't get into the conspiracy theories because I don't like chasing rabbit holes. I like to see people who do research like you do doctor. So I'm very impressed with all the things that you said, because you were literally 100% spot on. Uh, I have a gastro doctor that would absolutely love the information that you're talking about because he literally pushes fiber, 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 fiber to every patient. Like, You've got to do this. You can, you know, this is your number one food uh, component that you need in your diet every single day. Cause you know, to him, he's like, you know, if, if you come back, if you never come back to see me because you're healthy, then I did my job.
0: Well, that is, that is exactly right. The problem of course is that modern medicine took a detour. We should be paid (coughs) for making people well, (coughs) excuse me, rather than treating people for being sick.
1: As
0: long as as modern medicine is sick care rather than well care, you know modern medicine's on the other side, and it's part of the problem. So they're very happy for you to keep having to come back, so that they can continue to ply you with medicine. The fact of the matter is, doctors don't learn nutrition. Only twenty-eight percent of medical schools even have a nutrition curriculum, and the reason is because in 1910, the Flexner Report, which was the roadmap for medical school uh, 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 revolution and uh, 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 standardization uh, in, in America did not think nutrition was medicine. Despite the fact that the first vitamin was isolated two years later in 1912, that was thiamine. Despite that, and despite the fact that we then learned about all these other vitamins, and then learned about all these other flavonoids and polyphenols, etc. Doctors don't learn nutrition because it was never part of the medical curriculum. And the reason is because the pharma companies couldn't make any money on it.
1: That's right.
0: And so, and who basically bankrolls medical education? Big pharma. So you this was very it, yeah. specifically left out of medical education. That allowed the dietitians to pick it up. And the dieticians well, they had their own agenda. And, you know, I go into the uh, uh, history of the American Dietetic Association in the book. And the th- the thing you need to know is that the founder of the American Dietetic Association in 1917 was a woman by the name of Lena Cooper. And Lena Cooper was not a dietitian. She had never actually taken any dietary courses. She had never studied for any dietary uh, certification or uh, degree. She was the apprentice of none other than Dr. John Harvey Kellogg.
1: Oh, my gosh. At his
0: Battle Creek Sanitarium. And Dr. Kellogg had a very interesting modality of, of, of therapy. He believed that the two biggest problems in America back in the early 20th century were constipation and masturbation. (laughs) And he thought meat was the cause of both. Wow. And so he basically put people on a meat-free diet. But it turns out it's more than just the constipation and the masturbation, because it turns out that John Harvey Kellogg was also a Seventh-day Adventist
1: yeah that plays a big role and
0: Lena cooper was his apprentice and learned all of her dietetics from him
1: yeah you know i've never been a fan of i hate to say this and and hopefully any of you dietitians that are listening i have never been a fan of your industry for multiple reasons and this just solidifies it even more well, uh but I, i've got problem, some good news uh, yeah go ahead doctor
0: the biggest problem with dietetics today and it, I want to be very clear. i'm I'm not against dietitians per se. What I am is I'm for science. Yes, now, dietitians can be part of the problem or they can be part of the solution. And the dietitians that are part of the solution understand that a calorie is not a calorie, that food quality matters more than food quantity. Mm-hmm. That the calories are sort of secondary to the biochemical uh, parameters of specific foodstuffs. Now, if all you do is math, then you are part of the problem. And the problem is that many people in the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics continue to focus on calories. Hell, the USDA continues to focus on calories. And so this is where you know uh, government you know, has failed us because they have basically talked about this concept of food security that we need to get people enough calories. Well, you know what? We got enough calories.
1: Well, yeah. Cause yeah. Uh, I, I have a colleague of mine who happens to be a chef and a cardiologist. Uh-huh. He, he wrote a book called the fallacy of the calorie. <clears throat> and not only that, he is the professor Of culinary medicine at the University of Montana, where he literally teaches being a chef, preparing food, but looking at it as a way of healing the body.
0: Exactly right.
1: So and I mean it's just mind-blowing the things that you're saying. And then here I have someone that I know very, very well doing the absolute positive side of this work that people need to, to realize. And how do we get people away? from processed food to well, where they start eating the things that, well, God actually created for us to eat.
0: Well, you know, so that's very difficult and it's very difficult in today's climate. And the reason is because the food industry has no interest in changing. They have no interest in promulgating real food. And the reason is because of subsidies. They make money from the government off the farm bill because of food subsidies. So it is in their best interest to provide the cheapest calories possible because they are rewarded for it. As long as the food subsidies continue to rule the day, And that's embedded in the farm bill. And it has been challenged every single time the farm bill rolls around, every five years. But nonetheless, the subsidies continue to survive. Um, In 2015, I I would like to mention that there was one um, presidential candidate, one, who actually brought up the sugar subsidy and whether or not it needed to be retired, whether it needed to be deep-sixed. And that presidential candidate in 2015 was none other than Ted Cruz. <laughs> Ted Cruz questioned the sugar subsidy. Well, if Ted Cruz questioned it,
1: you know there's a problem. <laughs> well, well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and and the sugar industry alone is the one of the most – is probably the major culprit – Of of all disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer, heart disease, it's all linked to sugar. As you had already gave us the walkthrough of how the cells work in the body today, which uh I hope everybody is taking notes because they need to listen to this episode over and over again and get it ingrained to them that when they go to the grocery store, you sit and stop in the produce department and your basket should be that. And nothing else, because I always call the inner aisles of the grocery store the center of death.
0: Well, so let's go into the cell for a moment, and let me explain why sugar is um, death warmed over. So in our cells, we burn energy, and the energy is uh, 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 captured in a molecule, which is our chemical storage form of energy, and that chemical is called ATP. Adenosine triphosphate. And this happens, this process of turning the food into ATP, happens in a subcellular organelle in our cells called mitochondria. Chronic disease is mitochondrial disease. When your mitochondria don't work right, you're sick. You feel lousy. Bad things happen to your cells. And you don't have very much energy. So you feel like crap to boot. And when that's happening in your brain, you get depression. And when that's happening in your body, you get fatigue, weakness, sleep apnea. All of these things ultimately lead to decreased mitochondrial functioning. Well, turns out sugar, dietary sugar, glucose fructose, the stuff you put in your coffee, okay, the white crystals, if you will, or the high fructose corn syrup, or the maple syrup, or honey, or agave, it doesn't matter. It turns out it poisons your mitochondria. It makes your mitochondria work less well. The food industry says sugar is the energy you need to be able to do more. That is absolute garbage.
1: Oh, it's totally garbage. I, I'm a big ribose believer <laughs> because I've <laughs> talked to other cardiologists who actually use ribose as the energy molecule uh, to help uh, restore the mitochondrial as well as the ATP, and uh, Olympic athletes use it. And not. And what's funny is it's a five-carbon sugar that's, that's right. a minus one on the glycemic index, so you have to mix it with juice because it'll drop your blood sugar if you drink it with water, And and everybody knows I'm into – amateur sports like cycling and i'm a big believer in that and sugar is so detrimental to stamina and endurance and strength that it's if if i knew that i ate something wrong the day before i was going to go on a ride i know my ride's going to suck
0: well so (laughs) you know the, the ethiopian um Uh, Marathon runners know this too. You know, they eschew sugar, they stay away from it. And there are many, many uh, keto adapted um, sports athletes, you know, that such as Steve Nash and uh, several others who, uh, you know, know to actually stay away from carbohydrate because of this effect that it has on mitochondria. So this notion that that, uh, Uh, sugar and simple carbohydrates uh, are the energy you need to support your lifestyle is actually, you know, hogwash. And unfortunately, you know, the food industry, you know, keeps pushing it because after all that's the cheapest thing to produce is carbohydrate.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's it's so funny. I I had interviewed a um, cyclist from South Africa who actually works along a a doctor in South Africa that proves that things like keto are excellent for those, uh, who are in sports that need strength, stamina, endurance, and basically through the whole glucose loading thing out the window.
0: Well, I think you're talking about Dr. Tim Noakes in South Africa. I
1: think that's exactly who, yeah, I believe that's exactly who it is.
0: He's a hero of my book. (laughs)
1: Oh my gosh. I'm loving this doctor. I'm loving this. Wow. Wow. So he was brought
0: up on charges in South Africa for telling uh, parents to uh, uh, be careful about the amount of carbohydrate they give their kids. That's right. And they brought him up on charges and were actually going to uh, put him in jail for it. He ultimately was exonerated because people like my colleagues around the world actually came to his defense to, you know, show the science. But the fact is the dietitians were the ones who were trying to land him in jail.
1: Wow. I cannot, it's amazing. You know, even the research community can get really small, really quick, but this is just blowing my mind that, uh, you knew it was, uh, that particular doctor and oh, and it was funny because the the interview that I did with the cyclists it was like an hour and a half because we literally just just dived in to it all. and to prove that you don't need refined sugar, it's it's funny because you know, millions of Americans today wake up with caffeine and sugar. and they literally set their day up for failure every single day. And then they wonder why disease eventually shows up.
0: Indeed. Well, what I try to explain in the book is exactly how each of these molecules in our food ultimately either support uh, mitochondrial function or detract from it. The point is that the diseases that we call diseases today, the ones that I mentioned, the diseases of metabolic syndrome, which are all going up and have no cure. When you actually look at what causes them, there are eight, count them, eight subcellular pathologies, things that are going on inside the cell, and the drugs that we use can't get to them, cannot fix them. So I'm just going to name the eight. We don't have to spend any time on them. I'm just going to explain that these are not diseases that your doctor tells you about. These are not diseases with ICD-11 codes. These are not diseases that your doctor can bill for. So here they are in one through eight one, glycation, two, oxidative stress, three, mitochondrial dysfunction, which I've already mentioned, four, insulin resistance, which I've already mentioned, five, membrane instability, six, inflammation, which I've also mentioned, seven, methylation, epigenetics, number eight, autophagy, which is like garbage night for the cell. These eight processes, when they are working right, you will be 110 playing tennis. When they are working wrong, You'll be waiting for your next stroke in your wheelchair at age 40. So Mm. getting these eight pathologies right is what real food does, because real food gets inside the cell, gets to the mitochondria, gets where it needs to go. And that is why food is health, or I should say real food is health but that's also why processed food is poison because it is poisoning those mitochondria. It is causing that inflammation. It is preventing membrane stability, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem is we don't have any drugs for any of those eight.
1: Well, what is your advice for people who finally wake up and, and, and I have been shocked. And sometimes I think as, uh, Teachers such as you and I, sometimes for me especially, I'm amazed and maybe a little naive. On a lot of people, millions of people, do not know what to actually eat. They think they're doing fine. They can't figure out why they're gaining weight, and they just no clue. And it's it's basically because they've never been given the knowledge to to make the right choice.
0: Well, so there are two things. There's education. And there's implementation. So education is essential. It is necessary. But unfortunately, it is not sufficient. Education has never solved any substance of abuse. Did Nancy Reagan's just say no work? No. We have an opioid crisis. The point is that hedonic substances are hedonic. They are addictive. We like them. They stimulate dopamine in our brains, okay? They keep us coming back for more. They say to our brains, this feels good. I want more. But every single substance and behavior, for that matter, that stimulates our reward center in the extreme is addictive. Cocaine's addictive. Heroin's addictive. Nicotine's addictive. Alcohol is addictive. Not in everybody. You know, 40% yeah. are teetotalers, 40% are social drinkers can put it down and walk away. But 20% of Americans have an alcohol problem and 10% are friggin' hardcore alcoholics. Well, it turns out about the same for sugar. Wow. So we have a lot of sugar addicts running around. And you know what they say? Oh, I have a horrible sweet tooth. That's sugar addiction. It's just that it's socially acceptable to say so. And it's likely you'll find somebody else who's as much of a sugar addict and say, oh, let's go for an ice cream sundae because it's still socially acceptable.
1: But then you have people who are technically sugar addicts. They don't know it because they're eating processed foods, but they look at it as... Well, you know, I lean more towards salty foods than sweet foods, so I don't really have a sweet sweet tooth, but they don't realize that the processed food that they're actually eating is laden with sugar.
0: Exactly right, because salt increases the salience of sugar.
1: There you go. Thank you so much for backing that up for me, because I have spoke about that for years. And yes, salt will cause you to not only crave even more sugar, it just, uh, well, actually also too, sugar... um, can help well actually causes you to retain more sodium in the body.
0: Uh, well, so it's not that sugar causes you to retain more sodium; it's the insulin resistance that it causes is, okay. you to retain more sodium. So it's downstream of the sugar, but yes, absolutely. And also, fat increases the salience of sugar. I mean, which would you rather yeah. have a Cinnabon or a Pixie Stick? You no, know, I'd
1: take a Cinnabon. <laughs> <laughs> if I was the, if I was given the choice, and the only two foods on a desert island, I'd pick the Cinnabon.
0: Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> The, po- the point is that sugar is the problem, and it's in all the ultra-processed food. It is the marker for ultra-processed food because, to be honest with you, this other stuff in pro- ultra-processed food kind of tastes like crap. You can basically hide all of the other tastes, the sour, the sweet, the umami, the bitter, okay by giving by putting enough added sugar in. You can make dog poop taste good with enough sugar.
1: Yeah, and that's
0: true. Once you're addicted – You know, there's no help. You know, they keep coming back for more. And we know that this is true in human terms because there's an economic example of this, that economists study. This is called price elasticity. So what this says, price elasticity is the function of when you raise the price of a certain item by 1%, how much does consumption reduce? So things that are not addictive or not hedonic. When the price goes up, consumption goes down. For instance, eggs. Eggs are price elastic. So consumption goes down when price goes up. But let's look at the three things that are the most price inelastic. That is the things that where price doesn't change consumption. You can raise the price and consumption won't budge. Number one, fast food. Number two, Soft drinks, number three, juice. What do those three things have in common?
1: They're all sugar and processed.
0: They're all sugar, ultra processed. That's exactly right. So we have a, an addiction problem in this country. We are addicted to our ultra processed food and we can prove it. We can prove it at a biochemical and at an imaging level. and We can prove it at an economic level. The problem is people don't know it. So, if you don't know it, how can you fix it? But even if you did know it, how could you fix it? Because, after all, education alone has not solved any substance of abuse. We need implementation, not just education. We need help. We need um, uh, uh, societal interventions that help us move that along. All right. And unfortunately, a lot of those end up in government slats. And of course, government's not on this at all, which is why I needed to write the book to explain to government what its yeah. job is, because it doesn't yeah. seem to know.
1: Well, let me ask you this. <clears throat> Wasn't it, um, it was a few years back, uh, and I believe it was Mayor Bloomberg of New York at the time that yep. wanted to what, do some big giant tax on the Big Gulp? And everybody just went, it was just a huge uproar. Well,
0: it wasn't a tax. He tried to reduce the size to 16 ounces. It was it basically uh, you you couldn't buy a third, you know, anything larger than a 16 ounce soda was the idea. And, you know, he, uh, ultimately it went to the New York S- state Supreme court and it was knocked down. It was uh, uh, deep sixed by the uh, uh, Supreme court justice, Herman Tingling. And what, Tingling said, which was completely inappropriate, was that number one it was arbitrary and capricious because if you went to a dispenser you couldn't get it, but if you went to a bottle you, uh, in the Seven Eleven you could. So therefore, it was um, it was arbitrary and capricious. However, the th- the uh, the case law that Tingling used was a case from 1986 called Boreali v. Axelrod. Axelrod was the public health commissioner of the city of New York at the time. And Boreali basically said he had a liberty interest. He had a right to smoke wherever he wanted. And that case went to the New York State Supreme Court and ultimately was decided on Boreali's uh, uh, behalf that uh, he did have a liberty interest to smoke. It was, you know, it, 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 it was... Uh, uh, the, the government did not have the ability to uh, 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 stop him. Well, that incensed the New York State legislature so severely that that's when they started passing the laws of you can't smoke in bars, you can't smoke in atria, you can't smoke in hospitals, you can't smoke. And, and basically, they wiped out every place you could smoke, except basically your car. And so it turned out Boreali... Is now bad law because it's been legislated out of existence. And if you go to Westlaw or LexisNexis, you know, in the law field, and you look up that case that Tingling used as his excuse, turns out it's a red flag. But that's the case Tingling used to basically uh, uh, turn back the Bloomberg big gulp ban.
1: Well, so okay, then let's we'll look at it this needs way. To be revisited. Yeah. Okay, then okay, let's put a, uh, a positive spin on this because I know it, it received so much negative press, and I think it kind of goes in line with, with what your book is trying to teach all of us is that from Bloomberg's point of view, it would have been implementing something positive to hopefully just really, it's just really just scratching the surface. Uh, surface of maybe reducing, you know, diabetes and obesity. Is that what he was kind of focusing on and hoping to accomplish?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it was a public health construct. And that's the point is that public health is not Republican. It's not Democrat. It's not conservative. It's not liberal. It's public health. And it always had been until the last four or five years.
1: Yeah, it's become very, very political. And, and then people saying, well, you're infringing on my freedom. That's right. I got you. Well, let me ask you this. One last question, because I could talk to you, doctor, all day long. Uh, what is your, um, what do you want to accomplish with this book, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine? What do you hope to accomplish?
0: Well, you cannot solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. I I wrote this book very specifically to state the problem, and what I also did was I explained to all stakeholders what their role in fixing the problem is so that they can see what they have to do, and then they would not have to do it alone, but how everyone can come to the table to solve the problem together, and it can be done. Everyone can benefit. The patients, the doctors, the insurance companies, the hospitals, the entire medical establishment, and the food industry, and government. And to be honest with you, even big pharma, if they you know, they take their head out of the sand.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, everyone can benefit if they understand what their contribution to the problem is, and they're willing to engage in a substantive real discussion to fix it but they have to understand what the problem is. This book explains what the problem is.
1: And Doctor, I wanna thank you so much for bringing forth such a powerful book, a very unbiased look on so many levels. And I like the way that you explained it. You know, if we all looked at each other as one, we are the human race, let's benefit one another, let's listen, let's just throw out all the labels then we can actually accomplish great things and then everybody benefits because you even listed, you know, the medical industry, the food industry, and everybody can benefit if we would just all agree on doing the right thing. And I'm sick and tired of disease making so much money. I live, uh, north of the houston texas area and every time they build a hospital it's full the next day and i'm thinking we have a problem we do and we have a massive problem and what i love about you dr lustig is that you are a medical doctor you have you know you can see the forest for the trees and you know, you've been at this for so long. And like you had said, you understood when medicine was really good at the time. And all of a sudden, it's just lost. Well, not just lost. It's lost its way over the last 40 years. So and has
0: dietetics and so has dentistry and so has basically the entire, you know, healthcare field.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you and and I like the fact, and I want to compliment you that uh, you've kept your head on straight the whole time, <laughs> <laughs> and and your books are fantastic. Now, where can all of my listeners not only buy the Metabolical book but also find your other works because they they speak so much truth?
0: Well, you, you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, etc. Please go to your local bookstores. Okay, Amen. I need you. Okay, <laughs> that's it. Okay, it's a lot easier to page through a book at a local bookstore than it is on Amazon. Please, for, for real. All right. Oh yeah,
1: I, I agree. I mean, and 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 I and I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, please, you know, bless your local area, bless your local stores. Walk in there. Not everything has to be bought online. Okay. Bookstores uh,
0: are happiness.
1: Yes, they are. Oh, my gosh. My, my daughter always begs me, can we go to the bookstore? Can we go to the bookstore? The and bookstore I'm
0: like, is happiness. Go. Amen. <laughs> in addition, in addition, your uh, listeners can go to robertlustig.com or metabolical.com. Uh, the references for Metabolical are 1054 in number. I couldn't put them in the book because it would have expanded the book by 70 pages and it's already 416 pages. Okay, it would have cost five extra dollars and killed I don't know how many millions of trees. So we put the entire reference list online at Metabolical.com.
1: Oh, fantastic. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, Dr. Lustig's last name is spelled L-U-S-T-I-G. Look up Dr. Robert Lustig. And is it is it drrobertlustig.com?
0: it's no no it's robertlustig.com.
1: okay okay all right Ro- robertlustig.com. so look that up and what was the other organization that you said you had a uh, what so realfood realfood.org right
0: so we get real food into schools all over the country because the largest fast food franchise is american schools and the uh, our organization is eatreal.org look uh, it up lady. and uh see what we do and maybe we can come to your school district
1: Oh, ladies and gentlemen, look that up. I want you to go to realfood.org. No, eatreal.org. Oh, eat Eatreal.org. Eat eat okay. Eatreal.org. And also go to Robertlustig.com. Buy the book Metabolical. Check out the his other works. They're phenomenal. You will be educated. But remember, when you become educated, start to implement the very things you learn. That's how our world changes. That's how you become a world changer yourself and changing the lives that are actually around you. Yes, you can make a difference when you gain the knowledge you need. And we're giving that to you. So again, Dr. Lessig, I want to thank you for your time uh, and giving us your wealth of information and education to us today.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, Dr. Bond.
1: Uh, Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, remember to catch every episode of life changing wellness, just hit subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And if I can ask you a favor, please take 30 seconds and rate the show on iTunes. I want to thank you for doing that for me as we want to bring you the best show possible Pass this, this particular episode around to all of your family and friends. We need to get this message out of what Dr. Lustig has Taught us today. So just look up Dr. Bond's Life Changing Wellness on any streaming service. You can learn more about me at drwardbond.com. And again, thank you for listening to Life Changing Wellness. We are known as a different kind of wellness show. And remember, something spectacular happens when you treat your body right. Have a blessed day, everyone.